Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have a guest speaker today from Ethnos 360. It is Adam Hamill, and he'll be delivering us our message today. Good morning to you all. Oh, that's great. You know, sometimes you go to a church and they, uh, you say good morning and you kind of get this little half-hearted thing, but you guys, man, you know how to say good morning. That's wonderful. How wonderful to be able to, to share this day with you, to be able to come and before I even get to, to speak with you, we get to together remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one that binds us all together regardless of where we come from, regardless of where we live, because of Jesus, we have a unity with one another that binds us closer than any other bond could. Any other bond. How wonderful is that? Let me see. Aha. I do have this up. I can switch over. Wonderful. Well, uh, as was said, my name is Adam Hamill. I uh, uh, live in Waukesha. I was uh, raised born in Stoughton, raised in Wauwatosa, and uh, moved over the country a number of times, but I seem to keep coming back around here because there is just something about Wisconsin, let me tell you, that something worth loving. Uh, uh, speaking of loving, I have three wonderful children and a beautiful wife. This is my wife, Tamara, uh, and my oldest, Berean, and then middle child, Arlie, my youngest, Brenity. Uh, I love to show off this picture. They are, of course, always dancing around us like little uh, fairies of joy with absolutely no troubles in our family whatsoever. They always listen perfectly. Yes, absolutely. It's great. No, but honestly, my kids look great, don't they? They're just beautiful kids. Can you guess where my kids get their good looks from? There is a right answer. Where? Anyone have a guess? No, not their mom. They get all their good looks from me. You know how you can tell? Because Tamara kept all of her good looks. All right. Guys, go ahead and steal that one. It is a good one. Uh, I do serve at the Bible Institute, Ethnos 360 in Waukesha, and it is a joy to be there. I was able to be there as a student back in 2008-2009, and I've served a number of other places. I was a pastor in the UP, but, man, with the opportunity to teach at that Bible school is just wonderful. I get to work alongside of uh, students who are getting ready to go wherever God leads them. Some of them will go on with Ethnos 360 to take the gospel to people who have never heard before. Some of them are called to other uh, places, other jobs and, and lives. But to be able to come alongside of people and help them to understand God through God's Word is just an incredible joy. Um, I was graciously given uh, a table right at the entrance uh, which has some more information about the Bible School for anyone that is interested. Hey, if there's anyone, by the way, who is wondering, can I learn more about the Bible and they want to go, I can get you more, plenty of information about how to, to study there. It is a great place. We also have stickers 
and you can go ahead and grab those as well. Some of you are like, man, I would love to learn more about uh, some of these things, but I can't go there as a student. They happen to at the Bible school. Our mobilization department has made these little business card things, which has the ad address, the website you can go to in order to watch free uh, courses online, uh, such as a two-hour course walking you through the story of the Bible. I just, I got to get that plug in because it's really great. And besides, free is always nice, right? Speaking of free, I want to be able to take a walk with you through one of my favorite passages of Scripture. John chapter 4. John chapter 4 tells us the story of, of the work that God is doing and of the gift that he offers to us. Of the, he tells us of the little town, which was relatively unknown, and, and some of you might not even be familiar with the name of the town, but it is a wonderful place that is worth not passing over. It is a place called Sychar, the place of the hidden feast. Before we go ahead and uh, start reading that text, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance we have to open your word and to understand you better. We thank you for this opportunity. We ask that you would help us to, to know you more so that we can trust you, so that we can follow you, we can love you with our whole lives. In your name we pray, amen. All right, if you want, I see, heard the rustle of some papers, you can go ahead and follow in your Bible. Um, I will be reading out of uh, maybe a different translation. I use the NET, uh, but it is going to be going up, up on the screen, so you can read from there if you want as well. Let's start reading from John chapter 4, verse 1, which says, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. All right. I believe we have a song now. A closing song after the message. I hope that it was all encouraging to you. No, that's fine. I could hold it for a little bit longer. You might have one of three potential reactions after that reading. <laughs> I don't think that I gave you quite that much dopamine. <laughs> you might have one of three reactions after that reading. First of all, you might say, reaction, what are you reacting about? I have absolutely no idea. Some of you, perhaps those that were trying to follow along in your Bibles, might have gotten lost about halfway through the reading, and like, what in the world is going on with this, this guy? And some of you might be wondering, what is that little, ooh, I think I saw Jeremy has this thing, which I'm definitely going to use. What is this little white box doing up here? I love this thing. That's awesome. You can tell Jeremy I use that later. So we got this little box. I wonder what that is. Well, let's, let's get rid of the other text, and let's see if we can expand and see, oh, that, that little box has got writing. In fact, that little box contains 40 verses of Scripture. From John chapter 4, verse 4, to John chapter 4, verse 43. Somehow, as I was reading, starting in John 1, going to John 44, I was able to seamlessly skip over 40 verses of Scripture. And for those of you 
who were not reading along, you might not have been able to tell the difference. Isn't that interesting? You see, Jesus has been ministering. John chapter 3 tells of Jesus being in Judea. He spoke with Nicodemus and he was engaged in ministry and he was growing in his ministry up until the point where suddenly he was baptizing more than John and suddenly they were like, oh hey, Jesus versus John, What's gonna, who's going to be more popular? And Jesus is like, nope, I'm having none of it. And he is headed out of Judea to Galilee, to his, his hometown, the region where he had done a whole lot of the ministry you'll see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the traditional path that you would take as you're going through, the straightest route would take you through this town, called, this region called Sychar, or, or through Samaria. But a good Judean or Galilean would not go through that region. They would go around the bad side of the bad, bad side of the country, you might call it, and they would avoid this place. But we are told in John chapter four, verse four, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. We said he had to pass through Samaria. And he came to a Samaritan town called Sychar near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, since he was tired from the journey, sat down beside the well, and it was about noon. What's the big deal with Jesus going through Sychar? You see, there's a cultural thing that was going on here. The Samaritans in Samaria were Jewish in their religion, but Israel had a long history, which you may or may not be familiar with, in which after Israel had entered the land, they did not follow God as God had called them to. And God had, way back in Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, right, Moses? He had given them a law saying, follow this, do this as Israelites in order to be blessed in the land and have victory and peace at home. And if you don't, then you will be punished, you will be judged, and eventually you will be kicked out of the land. And Israel, the northern half, was kicked out of the land, and a lot of Israelites were taken out of the land to go to Assyria, dispersed throughout the empire, and the Assyrian empire that took over brought a lot of foreigners into the land, and there was a lot of intermarrying going on where there was a mixture of these cultures to the point where Babylon eventually came and did the same with the southern kingdom. They got removed, but then they came back and they rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. And then when the temple was rebuilt, the Samaritans said, hey, fantastic, can we come? And the Jews, the Judeans said, no, because this is for Israelites and we deem your bloodlines to be too impure. You have too much Gentile in your ancestry. And so what did the Samaritans do? They decided, well, we're going to be Jewish, but we are going to be Jewish in our own way. They rejected all of the Old Testament scriptures except for the first five books from Moses, the Pentateuch. And they said, if we can't worship in Jerusalem, we are going to worship at our own mountain, Mount Gerizim. And so you end up with Judea in the south and Galilee in the north, that are pretty much the same group of people that all worship at Jerusalem, and you got this little land in the middle, Samaria. And these Samaritans had more in common with the Israelites, with the Jews, than almost anyone else in the world, and yet their differences split them apart. So, Jesus comes. He has to go through Samaria. And it's hot. It's the middle of the day, about noon. He sits down by a well. 
And we see that this woman comes. We read in chapter 4, verse 7, A Samaritan came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. For the disciples had gone off into town to buy supplies. So the Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water to drink? For Jews have used nothing in common with Samaritans. See, now with this context, we understand that objection and that confusion she has a little bit more, don't we? Imagine that you are this woman at the well. It's the Middle East. It's always hot in the Middle East. You don't have running water. Any water that you want to get for the whole day, whether to drink or to wash yourself, you have to to collect yourself at the wall, going in and and getting bucket and filling up your own water and carrying it back yourself to your house for use for that day. When are you going to want to get water for the day? Early in the morning or maybe late in the evening, right? That's when everyone would want to do it. Who would want to go and get that in the middle of the heat of the day around noon? Why do you think she would go in the middle of the day then? Because everyone else went in the morning and either she was avoiding them or she was ostracized by the rest of the town. And we'll see the reason later as we get into the passage. We'll find out this woman has been married to and likely rejected by five previous men. And now she is living with a sixth man outside of marriage. And within the culture of that, of that city, that would make her an outcast. And then as she comes, this Jewish rabbi is sitting by the well. And she might expect him to, to look at her and to judge her. Maybe give a sniff of derision and ignore her. How disconcerting for her, for him, to ask for water. I don't wonder that she would object as she did. But how astounding to hear his answer to her. When he says to her, If you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Do you hear that? I I bolded it and put it in all caps and underlined. There are two things that Jesus wanted this woman to know. He said, if you knew only two things, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, you would have asked the man and you would have received the gift. And then over the course of the rest of his conversation with her, he proceeds to unpack what exactly this means, first of all, talking about the gift, because that's what she asks about. Hey, what are you talking about this living water? She says, verse 11, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Surely you're not greater than our ancestor Jacob, are you? For he himself gave us this well and drank from it, along with his sons and his livestock. She thinks that it's some kind of earthly water, a normal water. And she says, oh, living water means like not stagnant water like a pond, but it's living as in, as in it's, it's running through and it, it gets refreshed constantly so it's a healthy source of water because that's what they meant by that. And she's like, we already have this. Our well reaches down into a stream. We have living water, which has lasted since Jacob, so about 2,000-ish years by this point. This is an old, reliable well. What do you have to offer me? And Jesus responds. He says, Everyone who drinks some of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks some of the water I will give him 
will never be thirsty again, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of living a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus says this water is not a physical, mystical water that magically will save on your water bill. Nice as that would be. Even with an endless supply of water, we age and die, don't we? Jesus instead says there are three facts you need to know about this water, this living water that I offer you. First of all, this water is freely given. You don't have to do anything to gain it, to deserve it, to earn it, to pay for it. You ask and you get. First thing that we know about this gift of God Jesus is telling her about is this living water is freely given. Second of all, this living water is a gift that you need to drink only once. He says, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. You drink once and you never need to drink this water again. You never need to receive this gift again because you will never have thirst as long as you live after you take, after you receive this gift and you drink of this living water that he offers. This freely given, you drink only once. And third, we see that this gift that Jesus says, if you only knew what this gift was, he says what this gift is, is it is eternal life. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is the gift of God? It is the freely given gift of eternal life that you only need to receive once. What a wonderful gift. Who wouldn't want A gift like that. And so the woman responds in verse 15. She says, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come to to draw water. She's still confused, isn't she? But she is starting to catch on. She is starting to see this is something that I want. Is she able to give a a thorough theological treatise on the theology of salvation? No, probably not. But she understands she has a need for this freely given gift of eternal life. And so she says, please, will you give it to me? Oh, but Jesus said, you need to know not just one thing, but two, don't you? He says, you need to know not just what the gift is, you need to know the giver as well. And so she says, give me this water. And what does Jesus say? He says, fetch your husband. She says, I don't have one. And Jesus responds by saying, technically, that's correct. You've had five husbands, and now you're with someone who is not your husband. Now, why does Jesus say this? Some of us might say, oh, Jesus was trying to make her feel bad and make her feel shame for for a sinful life so that she would turn and she would repent from that. I'm, I'm sure that she was embarrassed and ashamed by what he said. But I think that if we think along those lines, we are missing what Jesus has already said was the point. He said, I want you to know what the gift of God is, and I want you to know who I am. And we see that she is able to understand something by what he reveals, and this is what Jesus is going for. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She could understand more about Jesus, that he had access to divine revelation, knowledge that only God could give. She knew, or he knew her uncomfortably closely. And yet, he still wanted to give her this free gift of everlasting life. But nevertheless, she dodges with a theological, cultural, and political hot-button issue. And she says, all right, I perceive you're a prophet. Tell me then, our fathers worship on this mountain. 
you people say that this place where the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Who's right? She's doing a dodge here. She thinks that she is turning the conversation away to a more favorable thing, but let's not forget she's talking to Jesus. And Jesus is not off track, not one little bit. He first revealed he had divine, access to divine knowledge, and then, where am I saying? Where am I at here? And then he says, actually, first of all, you're wrong. <laughs> first of all, you are supposed to be in Jerusalem. Salvation is from the Jews. But he says that's not, more, that's not important. Skip that. That's giving you a little advanced information. He says, the Father is looking for people to worship Him. Not based on where you worship Him. Not based on your location. He says, the Father is looking for people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And as He gives that information, Jesus does something interesting. He is suddenly making a shift in the way that people had worshipped God for thousands of years. He has already said, I have access to divine information that was never that that you have no right that I should have no right to know and then he says not only that I have access to information that there is going to be a shift in the way that people relate to God and it's not going to matter where and it very much mattered where for all of Israel's history you had to worship at the temple he said this is about to change and suddenly she says hey I know the Messiah is coming the one who is called Christ and when he comes he will tell us all things and Jesus says I who speak to you am he. She recognizes that not only does he have information that he has no right to know, but he is starting to speak about new things, about how to relate to God. And she says, ah, ah, Deuteronomy, Moses said, one day there will be a prophet who is like me, who will reveal all things, and you must listen to him when he comes. And she says, we are waiting for this Messiah. We are waiting for this prophet. And by implication, she's asking, are you him? And Jesus says, yes. By the way, when he says, I who speak to am he, literally, what he says is, I, the one speaking to you, am. The he is not even there. Jesus actually says, I am. He claims the name of God when he speaks to her. And suddenly, something clicks in her. Something clicks. And the woman who had gone all morning without water to avoid the women of the town, the woman who finally came to get water in the heat of an equatorial near-desert climate suddenly wasn't thirsty anymore. And just as Jesus had predicted in her heart, she who now knew the gift of God and the one she was speaking to, she asked for and received the living water of Jesus the promised eternal life. And it is a beautiful moment. Not only that, as predicted, that sip of living water didn't just become eternal life for her, it became a fountain of water. And it began to spread news. She began to run back to the town, leaving her water jar behind, spreading news of Jesus to the town. The outcast of the town ran back to tell everyone that they had to see the one who knew everything she had done. And the entire town began to see, to come out and see Jesus. And then there are the disciples. The disciples. Oh, the ones who had already believed and received water since 
Jesus had turned water into wine in John chapter 2, verse 11, where Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They already believed and accepted the water. And in John chapter 4, we saw they were already taking part in ministry. They were the ones that were baptizing people in the name of Jesus. Most of these men were from Galilee, eager to return home, and they were uncomfortable walking through Samaria, and they just wanted to be on their way ASAP. And so when Jesus sat down at the well, they had gone into the town. But where the, the woman, when she received the water and met Jesus, and then she went into town, she came out with the whole town of people to see him. And the disciples who knew more about Jesus and that woman would know for a long time, they went into the same town and they came out with lunch. What in the world? As the woman thought water went, meant water, the disciples thought food meant food. Here's the thing. Same day, within like a half hour, these conversations are taking place. They say, Master, eat. And Jesus says, I have food that you know nothing about. Oh, they're like, oh, did, did the woman like sneak a little loaf of bread underneath her, her cloak and, and slide to him in secret? And he, he ate, he's not hungry. And Jesus says, no, here's what my food is. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Within 40 verses of scripture, we see two truths revealed to two groups of people according to their needs. To the woman, he says, if you knew God's gift and who Jesus was, you would ask for and receive living water that is eternal life, freely given, never needed to be asked for again, lasting forever, life. And to the disciples, he says, if you knew God's will and the work that he wants accomplished, you would work for and receive food. Two separate things that Jesus is offering. By the way, this food that he is offering to disciples, Jesus says this is his food. He is the source of the water, and he was working to obtain the food. For what food does Jesus himself work and invite us to also work for? John 10.10, Jesus will say that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life and abundant life. Water and food. Jesus offers us so much more than we think. You need eternal life. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the free gift of everlasting life, it is by his death, his resurrection, through him alone, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no amount of work is ever going to make God look at you and say, you have done enough good that you can come to heaven because I'm just so proud of how hard you tried. No, that does not happen. You receive eternal life absolutely freely as a gift. But once you believe, if you think that just having received that water, that that's enough, you will miss out on so much of the abundance of life that God wants you to have. God does not just call us to gain the water. He calls us to get the water and the food. Let me illustrate for you. You might have heard of the rule of threes. If you want to survive in the wilderness, you can only survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter in a harsh environment, three days without water, and three weeks without food. On the spectrum, water is necessary for life, right? And it's also incredibly refreshing if you've been talking for a little while. That refreshing. Oh, it's wonderful. But if all I had to go off of was water, 
for several days, I would survive, but I would hardly call that thriving, wouldn't I? After a, a week or more of only water, any kind of food would look amazing. You see, water is needed for life. Oh, but food. Have you guys ever been? I just, I came through town and I stopped at this B&B uh, hitching post, is that what it's called? Oh, my goodness. And when I stopped there, I just, I just went in and I just said, can I just get some takeout? And I, I was like, what do I want? I saw this, that they were able to sell a cinnamon roll and bacon. <laughs> Let me tell you guys. I have been waiting for this for a while. And the more you wait, the more the anticipation kind of builds. Mm. Just a second. Now you got to work for it. Oh, my goodness. If anyone here happens to own that place, I will accept endorsements because it is amazing. I love that food. Oh, you see? You need water to live. You need water to live. But food, food makes life enjoyable. A mm, whole lot better if you have good food. The Christian life cannot exist apart from the living water that Jesus offers. But the Christian life cannot be enjoyed apart from the food that Jesus offers. We get so easily focused on the big picture of what God is doing across the world or in our lives overall. And it's good to stay focused and be able to continue to pursue that which God calls us to do in the big picture of our lives. But did you ever notice how easily Jesus lets himself get sidetracked? On the way to Galilee, he had to go through Samaria. Stop at Sychar and talk to this woman. On his way to raise a child from the dead. Remember when the leader of a synagogue comes and says, my daughter is sick, and they find out on the way that she actually died and he raises her from the dead. On the way, when a woman touches his cloak and she had been struggling with, with a bleeding disorder for 12 years and she gets healed. And he could have just said, great, she's healed. Moving on, he had to stop, find her out, single her out, and validate her. Praise her faith. Passing through Jericho, on the way to his own death in Jerusalem, Jesus had to pick out a tax collector out of a crowd who was just sitting up in a tree. And he had to say, you are a child of Israel, you are loved by God, and I am going to show it to everyone by eating at your house today. Do you see how easily Jesus lets himself get sidetracked. See, what Jesus is teaching us here is I think the reason why John, when he wrote John chapter 4, he made it so that those 40 verses, you could almost skip over them, straight from John 4, 3 to John 4, verse 44. You could skip over them seamlessly, just like the disciples could have skipped over the town of Sychar. They would have never known the feast that they had passed by. Jesus is teaching in these 40 verses to his disciples the lesson of the hidden feast. The disciples had trusted Jesus. They were part of his ministry, but they hadn't trained their eyes to recognize, recognize an entire town needing to hear about him. So he had to send 
this, this woman to plant the seeds and call his disciples to join in the harvest. So I encourage you, if you are wondering in your life, what is God's will for me? What is it that God wants done? Where if you are asking this for yourself, what am I supposed to be doing? I want you to ask these questions. What does God want me to do? Not just in the long term, not just in the big picture. Moment by moment, when you are sitting down at a restaurant and that waitress or waiter comes to you to take your order, what do you think God would want me to do in order to be a blessing to this person? When you're paying for for, for gas if you go inside the store, if you are at checkout at a grocery store, if you are dropping off mail at the post office and you, and you just pass by someone, if, if you're going into your house and you see your neighbor mowing the lawn next to you, how can I bless other people? Ask these questions and let God guide your perspective. By the way, I'm not speaking out of a, a sense of I do all of this perfectly. I am also preaching to my own self. I'm preaching to my own heart. Because I actually also need this. So, so don't, don't look at me as if I know how to do this perfectly. But I do see it in the scripture. And I think that I can encourage myself and I encourage you as well. in this. Because as you ask these questions, what is God's will? What does God want done now? You will come to a point where you can recognize your blind spots. Where you can notice the forgotten places. God will show you gaps in the wall to stand in. It is there that we can find the hidden piece. By grace through faith we receive eternal life. No one can earn it, and no lack of works can lose it. We receive it by, with one drink freely given. It's yours forever. But it is possible to receive the water and neglect the food. It is possible to accept the life and neglect the life abundant. Does that make sense? May we never miss the chance to let ourselves be sidetracked for the sake of the gospel. It is there that the hidden peace the abundant life is to be found. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful truth that you called on. You called on your Son, Jesus Himself, the giver of the water, to share in your work, to accomplish your work, to be part of that life abundant. And through Jesus, Father, you called on the disciples and you call on us still today to be those in whom that drink of that water turns into a fountain welling up to eternal life so that others will be blessed by it as well. Jesus, help us to learn to see the forgotten places. Help us to look for those places of the hidden feast so that we can enjoy the opportunity, the privilege, the honor of joining in your work and seeing your work done, each of us in our own way. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.